Allstate wants to remind fans that mayhem is everywhere, like at your pregame barbecue. While you prep your meats, that grease trap you forgot to empty is prepping to smoke your porch, garage, and the car inside. And without the right home and auto insurance coverage, the cost to repair this could eat up your savings. So bundle home and auto with Allstate to save and get protected from mayhem like this. Bundled savings variant are not available in every state. Coverage is subject to policy terms and conditions. We are welcoming a new show to iHeart and the DraftKings YouTube channel. It is called Point Game with John Wall and CJ Toledano. It's an insider's look at the NBA and the culture surrounding the league. Every week, the five-time All-Star and the number one pick in the 2010 NBA draft, John Wall will give his unique perspective on the hottest topics in the league and tell the best behind-the-scenes stories from his time in the NBA. So check out Point Game with John Wall and CJ Toledano on the iHeartRadio app, the DraftKings YouTube channel, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yeah, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human in customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. The volume. It's Hoops Tonight presented by FanDuel. The NBA season is kicking into gear and there's no better place to get in on the action than with FanDuel. The app is safe and secure. Getting your money out is super easy. You can jump into the action at any time during the game with live betting. And I love building those same game parlays. And FanDuel is now live in Ohio, so use promo code JasonT and download the FanDuel app today to start making every moment more. 21 plus in select states. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit FanDuel.com slash RG in Colorado, Iowa, Michigan, New Jersey, Pennsylvania, Illinois, Tennessee, Virginia, and Ohio. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP or text NEXT STEP to 53342 in Arizona. Call one 888 789-7777 or visit ccpg.org slash chat in Connecticut. Call 1-800-9-WITH-IT in Indiana. Visit ksgamblinghelp.com in Kansas. Call 1-877-770-STOP in LA. Visit www.mdgamblinghelp.org in Maryland. Dial one 877 Hope and Why or text Hope and Why to 467369 in New York. Call 1-800-522-4700 in Wyoming or visit www.1800gambler.net in West Virginia. All right, welcome to Hoops Tonight, presented by FanDuel here at The Volume. Happy Sunday, everybody. I hope all of you guys are having a great weekend. What an incredibly couple entertaining games that we had here on this Sunday, following up an incredible game last night between the uh, Philadelphia 76ers and the Boston Celtics. We've got a ton of good basketball to uh, to talk about today. We're going to hit on all three of those major nationally televised games, as well as the Memphis Grizzlies notching a signature win of sorts against the Denver Nuggets yesterday. We are live on AMP. Don't forget, those of you guys who are watching on YouTube or listening on our podcast feeds, that AMP is the very first place that you guys can get these shows 
And don't forget, before we get started, to subscribe to the Volumes YouTube channel. Don't forget to follow me on Twitter at underscore JasonLT so you guys don't miss any show announcements. And last but not least, if for whatever reason you miss one of these and you can't get back over to YouTube, don't forget you can find them wherever you get your podcasts under hoops tonight. All right, let's talk some basketball. So a very, very unfortunate start to this game for Lakers fans. The Mavs came out. I had a, a feeling that the Mavs would come out with a lot of fire in this particular game. You know, physical disadvantages will play out in theory over the long run. And you did over the course of that game. But a lot of times, especially in a smaller sample size, competing and playing hard, you can play a lot bigger than you actually are. And earlier in this game, the Mavs went to a couple of different things that I thought worked really well. First of all, they were switching everything. And when you do that, it stagnates offenses. And a lot of uh, a lot of uh, uh, the Lakers' offensive sets are like they have like an early offense flow. They'll get into their horns actions and they'll have, you know, Anthony Davis and LeBron at the high post and they'll run a couple interchanges to flow into their pick and roll. And they've been getting a lot of good stuff out of that over the course of the previous four games, in large part because they have more offensive skill than usual. But when you switch those sorts of things, it doesn't become an issue of what coverage you're you or like how you're going to contain that ball handling shooter coming over the top or dealing with Anthony Davis in a drop coverage at the rim or excuse me, uh, 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 Dwight Powell in a drop coverage at the rim. It just turns into a switch. And now it's like, who's going to create the advantage. And in so many cases earlier in that first half, LeBron and Anthony Davis weren't very aggressive. They weren't trying to get to the basket. There was one LeBron rip through um, uh, where uh, where he got to the rim for a, uh, a basket. Anthony Davis had a couple of shots, but for the most part, they were passive. Those two guys were six for 16 in the first half. So as a result, what ended up happening is the Lakers were getting pretty poor shot quality. They were getting threes, but they weren't high quality threes and they were missing them. And I think they started the game 0 for 14 from three while the while the Mavericks were making a bunch of shots on the other end. And that kind of flow, I always talk about that uh, cascading effect on the other end of the floor as the Lakers were not getting their defense set. And the, you know, Tim Hardaway Jr. is dribbling up the floor and just walking into easy threes as he's in rhythm when the defense isn't set. And it was a really interesting, you know, I always talk about the uh, the give and take of switching defenses. Like the Lakers did have, like six offensive rebounds in that stretch when they were down 41 to 19 or whatever it was. They were down big, but they were getting a bunch of offensive rebounds, but that's the trade-off. You're you're trading a little bit of a size disadvantage. You're going to give up some offensive rebounds. There's going to be some issues, but on the other side of things, you're stagnating their offense. You're turning them into an isolation team, and then you're loading up on LeBron and AD. They're not trying to force their way through traffic, so they're kicking to inferior shooters, and they're not making shots. And honestly, when you trade for two skill guards and D'Angelo Russell's unavailable with an ankle sprain, and then uh, uh, Malik Beasley couldn't hit the side of a barn, especially in the first half, he did end up hitting a huge three in the fourth quarter out of the right corner. But just in general, the offensive skill wasn't there as a result of Beasley's rough night and D'Angelo Russell just not being available. And so they dug themselves in a massive hole, and the game turned around on Jared Vanderbilt. Now, Lakers fans have been begging for a real wing for a long time, for a lot of different reasons, but primarily for the defensive end of the floor. LeBron James and Anthony Davis are capable of that type of perimeter defense. We've seen that a lot over the course of these last 
uh, four seasons where, especially in big moments, you can count on LeBron or Anthony Davis to switch on to the other team's best player and, and guard them and get stops. You guys might remember Anthony Davis blocking Tyrese Halliburton yeah, uh, a few weeks ago, you might remember back in the bubble, like LeBron James on back-to-back possessions, like switching out onto Kawhi Leonard and then switching out onto Paul George and getting a stop. And like, they have that in them, but it's just too much to ask them to do that on a possession-by-possession basis, especially with everything that you need from them on the offensive end of the floor. And so the Lakers, Lakers fans in particular, especially in the Russell Westbrook trade, when they lost guys like Kyle Kuzma that they could deploy like that or Danny Green who they could deploy like that or uh, Contavious Caldwell-Pope who they could deploy like that. They ended up in a situation where they were really, really undermanned on the perimeter, especially on the wing. And so when Jared Vanderbilt came in and he started playing really well, he had a great performance against Brandon Ingram in his first game where he was like the first guy in the month of February to hold BI to under 50% shooting in a game. And then he did a pretty good job on Clay Thompson in the next game. And the question was, is like, who else can he guard? Who else can Laker, who else can Darvin Ham deploy him on? Because if they can deploy him on the other team's best player, regardless of circumstance, that's a huge weapon. And so Luka Doncic became the next challenge. And it's a very different challenge. Brandon Ingram is an isolation scorer that has that likes to shoot over the top of the defense. And so Jared Vanderbilt's length is an advantage there. But he's not overly strong, right? You know, guarding an off-ball shooter puts him in a situation where he has to uh, he has to navigate off-ball screens. And that's an entirely different situation. He did pretty well with that. Well, here comes Luca. He's this giant, big, strong point forward that is great at drawing fouls, that destroys thin defenders in just about every single matchup that he has in the NBA. It's a completely different type of matchup. And I was really curious to see how he would do in it. And he did freaking incredible. He was, uh, he's got like, he's one of the advantages of him being thin is that he can kind of make himself into a low profile physical frame and he can slide up over the top of screens. He did a really nice job navigating those ball screens with Luka Doncic. And then when he did get caught, instead of giving up on the play, all he did was just pursue as best as he can and use his length to bother that next pass from Luka Doncic. And as a result, he forced a bunch of turnovers and got the Lakers going in that second quarter run. He also did it with all of his classic work that he's done in his entire career in the NBA, crashing the offensive glass. He was just an absolute wrecking ball on both ends of the floor and single-handedly changed the outlook of that game and at least got the Lakers to a position where they had a chance going into the second half. I believe they were down 14 at that point. From there... You gave yourself a situation where LeBron and AD could kind of wash their hands of that first half and be like, we sucked, we didn't do our job, but we're going to focus in in the second half and we're going to get the job done, and that's exactly what they did. Like I said, they were 6-for-16 in the first half, which was unacceptable with all of the front court mismatches that Dallas presents for them. And despite that, you know, and again, like a lot of times what will happen is they'll catch on the block and then, you know, guys will kind of dig down into the driving lanes, right? And so you'll have uh, an opportunity where you have a size advantage over the guy in front of you, but there's two guys right there next to you. And a lot of times, you know, especially in that first half, they look at that and they would just pass out of it instead of understanding that, yes, it's going to be hard. Yes, you're going to have to go through contact. You might have to score over two or three guys, but it's two or three guys that are way, way smaller than you. And you will be able to finish through all of that congestion and traffic 
on the perimeter and in the post. And so in that second half, they just didn't care who the hell was around them. They didn't care what the situation was. They were just dropping their shoulder and going to the rim. And they both were incredible in that second half. It's way too often over the course of the last few years, we've looked at other things. And there are other things that have gone wrong with the Lakers, but nothing matters if LeBron James and Anthony Davis don't play like superstars. They didn't in the first half. They were down 14. They did in the second half. They came back and they won the game. LeBron's performance was a little uneven in that second half. I mean, and I'm not even really blaming him. He's out of rhythm because he hasn't been on the floor much because of this foot injury. Then he hurts his right foot in this super bizarre situation where there's a non-contact injury where he doesn't land on anybody, falls to the ground. He's telling all of his teammates that he heard it pop. Everyone's like, "Uh uh-oh, that's it. And then the dude comes back into the fourth quarter and just literally wills his team while he's on the floor. Just I, I, I tweeted it out afterwards because I was so, so surprised. So far from where he needed to be physically. They couldn't use him on defense so that like Luca's calling him to run constant ghost screens with Justin Holiday, trying to get LeBron to navigate those screens and he can barely move. But he's just doing the best he can. And then on the other end, he wasn't. Sometimes it's better just to to cut the crap and keep it simple. He had a huge size advantage, just getting it on that left block every single time and working his way into the lane for easy layups. Handful of times he weaponized that pump fake and step through. That's a big time move um, for players when they pursue up on your jump hook. You pump fake that, and then you can step through and get all the way to the rim. He did that twice. He just threw sheer force of will and basketball IQ and veteran savvy and size and strength on two bad wheels, just willed his way to making an impact on that game. And then AD, obviously being the uh, in his late 20s and much more healthy the way that he is, was just a complete two-way monster. He was making every defensive play in the second half, making those out-of-area plays that I talk about so much that are so important. And then most importantly, he was hitting his jump shots. Not his three-point shot. His three-point shot is a disaster right now. But he was hitting his short jump shot, those short turnaround fadeaway jump shots. There's kind of like a, 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 a like a range with Anthony Davis where his jump shot falls apart. And it's kind of like right around 15 feet. If he can stay inside of 15 feet in their short fadeaway jumpers, he's money on those. But once you get outside to that 17, 18 feet and out, it just has really fallen apart for him. But know your strengths. And he stuck with that. And he made a huge game icing fadeaway on that left baseline in front of their bench um, that ended up being the biggest shot of the game. That I, I thought that had to have been super encouraging because what if LeBron does have to miss some time? You could be in some trouble. But if, if Anthony Davis is the superstar that he is, you have the complimentary role players that you have. D'Angelo Russell hopefully returns soon. If AD plays like that, you can buy LeBron the time to nurse that foot as much as he needs. Um, but I want to talk a little bit about the Lakers' defense because they were third in defensive rating over their previous four games compared to the rest of the league in their previous four games. Um, again, they were 3-1 and one in those games. They had that rough night in Portland where they just got their eyes shot out by the Portland Blazers or by the Portland Trailblazers. But you've seen, especially after, the, uh, after they were able to cool off that Dallas run, they held them to just 47 points in that second half. This is like a real defensive team now, and I think it comes down to a couple of different things. First of all, getting Jared Vanderbilt and Anthony Davis together. Anthony Davis playing at the defensive player of the year level that he's capable of, but Jared Vanderbilt as that complementary forward that they can deploy on perimeter assignments puts them in a great spot. 
Austin Reeves did a great job defensively in this game. Dennis Schroeder, the job he did on Kyrie Irving, we're going to talk about that in just a little bit. But Kyrie, like, like Dennis Schroeder was in Kyrie Irving's shirt the entire game and did an amazing job in that point of attack role. When you put all of that together, and guys like LeBron James was a shell of himself because of the foot injury. There's a version of this that comes together where LeBron can be more impactful defensively, and it could go up another level from there. The Lakers have won four out of five since the trade pieces started playing. Obviously, their one loss was a game up in Portland where LeBron James didn't even play, and they just got shot. They just got shot to pieces by that Portland Trailblazers team, and they are now just two and a half games back of the sixth seed. Now, one of my biggest fears, I told you guys, I said the Lakers have the talent. They are capable of doing this, but they've got to hit the Jets from now to the end of the season, and that's just a lot to ask physically of LeBron James and Anthony Davis. LeBron suffered his first little setback today. We don't know what the fallout of that's going to be. We'll see if he plays the rest of this road trip, but that was what my worry was. Yes, you got a better package. You got better players by some amount over Miles Turner and Buddy Heald and whatever else you could have gotten. You probably still can get Rui Hachimura. You still can get Mo Obama. But you, the point is, is you got something a little bit better. But you put yourself in a predicament where you've really got to hit the Jets now throughout the end of the season. And it'll be really interesting to see if those guys hold together physically. Um, Dallas, really quickly before we move on. I, this, is, this is a great example. Now, not every team they're going to play is going to be LeBron James and Anthony Davis, two of the better front court bully ball players in the league. but this is what it looks like when you have physical disadvantages at every single position. If you don't get otherworldly offensive performances from Kyrie and Luka Doncic, which you did not in this game, then you're just not going to be able to overcome giving up that kind of size and strength on the interior. So part of it's you got to tip the cap, right? Like Dennis Schroeder did an amazing job on Kyrie Irving. Jared Vanderbilt did an amazing job on Luka Doncic. But it's just going to be really hard for you to win games when you have to expect near perfection from your stars because you're giving up so much ground on the interior. I believe they're now one in f- one in three or one in four since Kyrie and Lucas started playing together. Obviously Kyrie notched a couple of wins by himself before that, but they're going to have to figure out some stuff in the front court this off season. I think to have any real chance of contending because if, if the Lakers could do it to him, guess who else is going to do it to him? Memphis. That's a bully ball team. They're going to bully them. You know, that's, you know, you don't think Nikola Jokic and Aaron Gordon are going to be able to have a ton of success on the interior against that Dallas Mavericks team. They're just giving up too much on that front line to contend within this season. All right, we're going to hit three games pretty quickly here. The Suns, Bucks, Celtics, Sixers, and uh, Nuggets, Grizzlies. So um, the Suns, Bucks game, I only caught the end of this one, but I was super impressed by Milwaukee's defense down the stretch. Phoenix scored just seven points over the final five minutes and change of the fourth quarter. Brooke Lopez had two massive blocks. He blocked Devin Booker at the rim, and then he swatted a DeAndre Ayton pull-up jump shot uh, in the mid-range. He's been amazing for them all year on that end. But Drew Holiday, you know, Devin Booker has made a lot of tough shots over the years in Drew Holiday's face, including a bunch in that 2021 NBA Finals series. But that's going to happen with great scores. It happened again towards the end of this game. I think it was 100 to 98. Devin Booker forgets the ball screen, dribbles down to that left block, and gets Drew on his hip and takes that patented fadeaway over his left shoulder, knocks it down. It's great defense. 
that's just an unbelievable player making an unbelievable shot. But what you have to do as a defensive player in that situation is understand that that's not your job. Your job is not to get a stop every time. Your job is just to make it difficult and trust the results. And on that final possession... After Devin Booker ties it, the, the Bucks go down, and um, Chris Middleton comes off of a screen and draws a second defender, uh, draws DeAndre Ayton up out of his drop coverage, and Chris Middleton throws a really nice uh, uh, over-the-top pass to Brooke Lopez for effectively the game winner. And on the other end, Devin Booker stares down Drew Holiday, fights through a ball screen, uh, or uh, Drew Holiday fights through a, a, a Jay Crowder screen to get back onto Devin Booker. Excuse me. Uh, uh, not uh, he switch it prevents the switch and stays on Devin Booker. Gosh, I'm getting my names confused today. Um, but he, uh, Drew Holiday gets back to Devin Booker. Devin Booker gets a little bit of an angle on a on a dribble move, and gets to his left hand, and has a step. But I always talk about how there's a lot more physicality that takes place in NBA games than people realize, and you're actually allowed to do quite a bit in terms of grabbing and holding. And one of the things that you can pretty much get away with at every level of basketball is your inside hand. So like if you're driving towards your left hand and I'm sliding to my right, if I hold that right hand up, I can do, I can get my left hand up in there as much as I want. I can kind of like give you a little bit of a forearm. I can hold my ground. I can try to bump you off of your line. You're going to get away with a lot of contact with that left hand. And as Devin Booker was going downhill, Drew Holiday, right hand up, so there's no foul call, left hand in the pocket, and then as soon as he looked down, he saw he had just a second where Devin Booker had kind of like tucked the ball as he was going to go up to the rim, and he just pushed that left hand through and knocked the ball out and got a huge steal. So again, to have the mental fortitude to just get, you know, Devin Booker scoring over the top of you in a clutch moment like that and to turn around and get a stop on the next possession, I thought was a big-time play from Drew Holiday in addition to all the scoring work that he did in this game. That Bucks defensive trio is super interesting. I talk a lot about how I, I really like it when NBA uh, uh, the core all-stars of an NBA team are guys who like to do it on both ends of the floor. And, you know, Giannis is one of the five best offensive players in the league. Drew Holiday is a really good skill guard who's a good pull-up shooter. Chris Middleton's kind of your classic three-level scorer, pull-up, shoot-over-the-top type of guy. But on the other end of the floor, they represent the three most important defensive archetypes that we have in the NBA. Drew Holiday is a point-of-attack guard that is great at navigating uh, over the top of ball screens and pressuring all of the great guards in this league, while at the same time having the positional versatility to guard up a position. Giannis Antetokounmpo, the exact opposite. He's your classic rim protector that has the versatility to contend in perimeter matchups, including guarding other teams' wings. And then Chris Middleton is more of your classic wing defender. He's not some sort of all-defense caliber guy, but he is a very good wing defender when he's locked in. And then you pair that with Brooke Lopez, just a classic NBA rim protector. They just have arguably the best perimeter, or they have the, arguably the best defensive per, uh, personnel in the league. And that's a big part of why they've been able to le- uh, to grind out wins, even with guys in and out of the lineup throughout the year. That's a huge win streak. What's that, 14 games in a row now? Um, we're expecting Kevin Durant to make his debut on Wednesday, and we will be covering that game here uh, on AMP. All right, moving on to Celtic Sixers. This is a huge moment for Jason Tatum, uh, knocking down that game-winning shot. One of my favorite things about star players as they grow into the prime of their careers is unwavering confidence. And I've always, you know, we talked about this a little bit with Nikola Jokic the other day, 
uh, in the Cleveland game. But I'm always impressed when star players have rough games and are able to bounce back and make big plays down the stretch of a game. We talked about that a little bit with LeBron James and Anthony Davis earlier. Tatum was not having an especially good game against the Sixers, but he rose into that final shot with the same confidence that he does when he's having a great game. Got great lift, and he knocked it down. I love the play design. Um, apparently, that's originally a Brad Stevens special, but it's a great counter to ball pressure and ball denial because a lot of teams are going to opt to pressure the ball with Jason Tatum because he's kind of not known as being the best ball handler in the league. Um, but most importantly, especially in late-game situations when there's not very much time left, a lot of coaches think, if I pressure you and make it difficult for you to get to your spot then I might be able to eat enough clock to where it won't be easy for you to get to a spot that you want and a shot that you want all in that short period of time. So they're pressing up on J uh, Jason Tatum all the way out at backcourt. And then since uh, Tatum doesn't have the ball, he can just focus on making a really hard cut. And that's what he did after Marcus Smart got the ball, just a hard cut towards the, uh, uh, towards the top of the key. Marcus Smart throws a beautiful pass that leads Jason Tatum right uh, right to where he's running, and then just uh, immediately hits the brakes and steps back. It's all kinds of separation. Goes straight up and down. No fade, no anything special. Just went to his bread and butter jump shot and knocked it down. Big time moment for Jason Tatum. Jalen Brown was also fantastic at the end of this game. Once again, just using his otherworldly athleticism to pressure the rim and his creative shot making. He had like a, a, a <laughs> just a disgusting step back jump shot at the free throw line in the fourth quarter of this game where he created like a solid 10 feet of separation. It's been really interesting to see how that combination of his athleticism and creativity has made him one of their better fourth quarter players. And he, his point per game average in fourth quarters is right there with Tatum, uh, but he's been more efficient. He's shooting 52% from the field and 40% from three in fourth quarters this year. Uh, but I wanted to talk about Boston's guards for a minute because they're the unsung heroes of the Celtics team. Uh, Jason uh, Tatum and Jalen Brown get a lot of credit, and they deserve it. But Boston is a ridiculously talented guard core. And during that big run, because like as you watch that game, right, uh, James Harden hits a three, puts him up 15 in like mid-third quarter. And the Celtics go on some ridiculous run. It was like 22-2 to two or something like that. And for the most part, it was their guards that did the work. That trio of Marcus Smart, Derek White, and Malcolm Brogdon that's as good a guard core, at least in the top three, that you'll find anywhere else around the league. All three of those guys are up over a point per possession in pick and roll this year. Uh, specifically, Marcus Smart and uh, um, and Derek White have been amazing in pick and roll this year. So they can be excellent creating that initial advantage to get Boston into their driving kick. I, I really thought this game swung on perimeter defense. Boston's guards getting dribble penetration while on the other end containing Tyrese Maxey and James Harden, making them take tough shots because defenders did not have to help because they were not giving straight line drives. Defenders don't have to help unless you get dusted. And so that perimeter defense dynamic, I always compare it to like offensive line, defensive line dynamic in football. That push or pull on either side is going to have a lot to do with how tough your job is elsewhere on the floor. And if you're constantly in rotation because you're getting beat off the dribble, it's going to be really hard to play defense. But if the guy who's guarding the ball is keeping him in front, you don't have to help. Now, all of a sudden, things get way more uh, way more difficult for the offense. I, they, they, they had a... 
they had a huge impact on that uh, on Boston's comeback before the Jays ended up closing the deal there in the fourth quarter. I've had a lot of Celtics fans tell me this year, when will you trust Boston's ability to close games? Um, and I wanted to answer that a little bit here. Um, to be clear, I do trust them a lot more than last year. You could see that based on the way they've played. They've demonstrated better late game execution than they did last year. Last year, the Celtics were one of the worst clutch teams in the league. They were 13-22 and 22 when a game was within five with less than five minutes left. This year, they're 20-8. and eight. So they've been much, much better, to be clear. But you guys know the drill. I've always valued the postseason more. And I just, you know, especially when I'm comparing them to other teams at the top of the league, like Milwaukee has demonstrated that on that stage, whereas Boston struggled with that a little bit last year. And here's the thing. The Celtics are 28 and uh, 20 and 8 in clutch situations this year. That's second best in the league. Guess who's first? The Milwaukee Bucks. They're 23 and 6 in games that involve clutch, uh, clutch situations. So I feel better about Boston. They've had a damn good season. But before the season, I picked Milwaukee to win the Eastern Conference by a hair. If you look at this season in totality and the way that both teams have played, do you think that there's been enough from both teams, bad Bucks, good Celtics, for me to swap them? I don't think so. I have not seen enough from either team, good or bad, to justify switching my preseason pick. That does not mean that I don't think the Celtics can win. I absolutely think they can win. I think they have a great chance. I, I I did championship tiers again last week for our Snapchat show. Yes, we actually have a Snapchat show as well. It goes once a week. Um, that's under hoops tonight. And I only had two teams on my top tier. The Boston Celtics and the Milwaukee Bucks. Not Denver, not Philly, no one else. Just those two. So I think Boston has a damn good chance to win the title. But only one of the 30 NBA teams gets to win. And I think that... Milwaukee has shown just a little bit more in terms of my ability to trust them on that stage. And I believe they have the best player. So again, it's not a slight at Boston fans. It's just, I haven't seen enough bad Milwaukee to make a flip in that particular pick. One final note on the Philly side of things. I continue to be super impressed by Joel Embiid, specifically with the fight that he has as things start to go poorly for him. I mean, the wheels were really coming off last night, and he fought like hell to get the Sixers a chance to win that game. At the end of this game, he made every single offensive play, bullying Al Horford on the baseline to get it, to get two free throws. It's, it's kind of inevitable when he puts his head down like that that he's going to get a bucket or a foul. He had a nasty step back two on the left elbow uh, over a double team. I've always talked about like Joel Embiid is almost better off shooting over double teams than he is passing over double teams, and he did struggle quite a bit with double teams in this game again. And then that classic little free throw line jumper that he gets off those James Harden pick and rolls. He made one of those at the end of the game too. Then he had a massive block defensively at the rim. Remember that was the big um, uh, impact that he had in that Memphis game. When he hits the Jets, he's just an absolute force of nature. And his season is being overshadowed by Giannis and, and Nikola Jokic a bit, but he's every bit as good as those guys. It was fun to watch. And, and to be honest, if, if if he plays like that, the Sixers have a real chance to win it all. All right, before we get out of here, Nuggets-Grizzlies, just really quickly. Um, the Grizzlies finally got a signature win, or at least for the first time in a while. They beat the hell out of the Nuggets yesterday, 112-94. Although the Nuggets have been on a road trip for a little while. Um, there were a couple of sp uh, specific factors that really swung this game, in my opinion. Xavier Tillman did an excellent job in isolation defense or one-on-one -on -one defense with Nikola Jokic. Got a big, strong body, low center of gravity, plays physical. 
A um, couple of specific things that, that he did really well. Uh, first of all, navigating ball screens. So one of the main things that Denver will do in their early offense before they run their sets is a lot of times they'll just have Nikola Jokic if he gets the rebound and everyone runs the floor. Jokic will just bring the ball up the floor and then just come off of a guard screen or maybe even two with the intent on just getting a switch. Because big guys typically struggle to navigate those screens because they're just big bodies. They're easy targets. And you can get a lot of switches that way. And then Jokic has just been absolutely barbecuing switches and post-ups all season long. But Xavier Tillman was just navigating those and not giving up the switch. Then a lot of times Jokic will default to turning his back to the basket at that point, and then he will try to post up whoever the center is. But he just wasn't giving ground. And because he wasn't giving ground, the uh, Grizzlies did not have to dig as much off ball. It's a very similar concept to what we were talking about with that drive and kick stuff with the Boston guards. When you don't have to bail out to help a guy and you can kind of stay in that in-between zone where you're ready to help, but you're also back with the shooter, it just makes it so that those kickout opportunities and Jokic was still making those kickouts, but now you have a fighting chance to rotate. And so now those open shots are now less open. And so now Contavious Caldwell-Pope, who's been dead-eye all season, is missing these shots because they're not great looks. They're just okay looks. And then as a result, Denver couldn't set their defense because they couldn't score, and Memphis killed them in transition. In this game, according to Synergy, Denver uh, was outscored in transition 32-14. to 14. Denver starters shot just 36% from the field. So big shout-out to Xavier Tillman. I thought he did it. I thought he did it. Again, it's... Is Jokic, has he been solved? No. Gives Jokic a seven-gamer against Tillman. I'm sure he'd figure it out. Uh, but in a one-game sample size, when the when the Grizzlies really needed a win, I thought uh, Xavier did a really nice job. Memphis also did the things they usually do. They dominated points in the paint. I think it was 60-42, to 42, and then they out-rebounded their, important, their opponent. But most importantly, and this is the key detail, when you win big, you don't have to play the slowdown half-court execution game in the fourth quarter. Memphis has been a god-awful fourth quarter team this year. They're getting outscored by seven points per 100 possessions in the fourth quarter, which is third worst in the entire NBA. What's a great way to avoid that situation? Beat the hell out of your opponent. And, you know, that's what they did. And uh, this is where I keep coming back every time Grizzlies fans will be like, hey, well, if you don't think they have the amount of offensive skill, what's their chance? What's their fighting chance to win? I keep telling you, just like the 2020 Lakers and the 2021 Bucks. Now, they had better players. They had LeBron and Giannis. They had Anthony Davis and everyone else who played for the Bucks. But both of those teams struggled with half-court offense in the regular season because of a general lack of perimeter shooting. Both of them. But they leaned on their defense to get transition opportunities throughout their postseason runs, and it was not a problem a great way for Memphis to mitigate their half-court offense problems is to be a better defensive team than they are. And they've been a good defensive team in the aggregate of the regular season, but they've struggled, especially in late-game situations. If they can solve their defense in those situations, get better at hiding John Morant, get better at springing those transition opportunities, they do have a fighting chance. I just think at this point, it's a very, very small fighting chance. All right, guys, that is all I have for today. As always, I sincerely appreciate your support, and I'll see you guys next time. volume.
Allstate wants to remind fans that mayhem is everywhere, like at your pregame barbecue. While you prep your meats, that grease trap you forgot to empty is prepping to smoke your porch, garage, and the car inside. And without the right home and auto insurance coverage, the cost to repair this could eat up your savings. So bundle home and auto with Allstate to save and get protected from mayhem like this. Bundled savings variant are not available in every state. Coverage is subject to policy terms and conditions. I'm Diosa. And I'm Mala. We are the creators of Locatora Radio, a radiophonic novella, which is a fancy way of saying a, a podcast. podcast. Welcome to Locatora Radio Season 9. Love, Love at first, first listen. listen. We're older, we're wiser, and we're podcasting through a new decade of our lives. This season, we're falling in love with podcasting all over again. And getting to the heart of our stories. We're going places we've never gone before, and we're bringing you along with us. With new segments, correspondence, and a brand new sound. Season 9 is kicking off with an intimate interview with Grammy Award-winning singer-songwriter Natalia Laforcade. What's giving you hope right now? Well, when I see what music does to people it gives me a lot of hope if you liked locatora before you're gonna love season nine subscribe to our show and you'll see why locatora is your prima's favorite podcast listen to locatora radio as part of the michael Tura podcast network available on the iHeartRadio app apple podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts MTV's official Challenge podcast is back for another season. And so are we. I'm Tori Deal. And I'm Anissa Ferreira. The wait is over, guys. All Stars 4 is finally here. And this season takes it to a whole new level. Old school legends, modern power players, and ex-lovers are all competing in Cape Town, South Africa for the prize of $300,000. And we're going to be right here along with you fans covering every episode on the podcast. Listen to MTV's official challenge podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.